Welcome to The Spear. I'm your host, Tim Heck. This is the first of two episodes with retired Lieutenant Colonel Dan Gade. In these episodes, Dan describes the deaths of American soldiers. While this is something that has happened before on The Spear, the deaths that Dan describes are rather graphic in nature. You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just woof, a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades. Light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds passed right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck, and today I'm joined by Dan Gade, a retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel. Dan, welcome to The Spear. Thanks for having me on, Tim. This is awesome. How'd you wind up in the Army? So I was born and raised in North Dakota, of all places, a place called Minot. There's an Air Force base there. and uh, But that's not why I came in the Army, actually. So my, my father was a Vietnam veteran. He was drafted into the Army when he was like 25 or something. He was already a school teacher. He graduated from college and everything and then got drafted. Um, and served uh, a year in Vietnam as a light infantry soldier in the 199th Light Infantry Brigade and was actually wounded in combat. And then after the Vietnam War, he told my mom, look, uh, they had just gotten married. He said, look, we're going to go to North Dakota for like one year. I promise we'll be done. And then they were there uh, 42 years later when he uh, uh, died a couple of years ago. So uh, I was born in North Dakota, uh, but I come from a family of patriots. My grandfather served in the Navy I had an uncle who served in the army. My father served in the army. Um, my older brother is a West Point grad. My little brother was a scout sniper in I Corps Lurse. Uh, in after I served or during my service, he was in the army as well. And so my family's uh, path was basically that every everybody should find a way to serve their country. And for a lot of us, that meant military service. And of course, you've heard this a thousand times. Like the military is a family profession, and in our case, it was kind of a family profession. So. An uncle that graduated from West Point, an older brother that graduated from West Point. I graduated from West Point. Two cousins, I think. Um, so, you know, on and on a family tradition. And, and of all things, you're going to love this. My middle name is MacArthur because my mother is that patriotic. And my older brother's name is Patton. And it's no surprise that both of us uh, went to West Point. When you came to West Point, what did you major in? So my major was environmental science, uh, largely because I'm by nature uh, sort of an outdoorsman and a, a tree hugger, and I, I, I do I do enjoy the you know outdoors and stuff. But uh, back then, at least, the phrase was EV equals TV, which means like if you're environmental science, you can have plenty of time to watch 
at that time the hit show was friends and and so we would goof off and uh it's plenty of extra time it was not that it wasn't considered to be that hard of a major but it was something i was very interested in and so i did uh environmental science um and then when i graduated i branched armor because i felt like that was a branch where if our country really needed um when, when a nation sends tanks someplace, that means they're serious. And I didn't want to fight in a bunch of wars where we weren't serious. And uh, so I branched armor when I graduated in 1997. And where did you go for your first assignment? Well, obviously, you know, the normal pipeline of schools, you know, at that time it was Fort Knox. And then I went to airborne school. Uh, and then from there, from there, I went to uh, Fort Carson, Colorado, where I was in the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment's 3rd Squadron. Um, started out, it's kind of funny, actually, you know, one of the things we, 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 when I taught at West Point, we'll get to that later, I assume, but I always would talk to the cadets about like, look, you know, when you get to your unit, you need to be ready to go. So I literally, when I got to, I got to Fort Carson on a, whatever day it was that night I was doing gunnery already. So I literally, I didn't even have my, all my equipment yet. I didn't have, uh, I don't even think I had a Kevlar yet. I had to borrow somebody's Kevlar. And all of a sudden I'm like doing gunnery and it was, it wasn't like the, it wasn't yet the shooting tables of tank gunnery, but it was like the preliminary tables where you're doing fire commands and all that stuff. But I was on a tank that night, um, which was pretty awesome. So I went right into a platoon leader job and uh, did that for about a year, did a tank platoon for about a year. And then I switched over and got, uh, got promoted and went to a scout platoon. After finishing platoon leader time, where did you go? Well, so it's kind of funny because I, uh, about, let me see, about 10 or 11 months into my scalp at their time, I got a call that the uh, commanding general was, or the deputy commanding general was looking for an aide. And and so every unit had to put up, every battalion or brigade or something had to put up a, uh, a lieutenant to interview for this DCG's aide job. And, and uh, uh, General Nixon, is um, his first interview question for me was, hey, why do you want to be an aide? I said, sir, I don't want to be an aide. I, I want to go back to my scout platoon. And he goes, <laughs> he goes, he goes, all right, well, that's interesting. You know, and then we talked about some other stuff. And then uh, sure enough, I found out that I'd gotten selected to be the aide. I think, I think he, he knew that, you know, you don't, as a general, you probably don't want the sort of person who wants to be an aide. You want the guy who wants to be a line guy. And I wanted to be a line guy. So uh, I, was, I was actually uh, really blessed by that, uh, by that friendship. I mean, he treated me you know, people, I would just say this to anybody who's watching and has a chance to be an aide, do it for sure. And the reason why is because you just get exposed to a completely different part of the army. You know, the general officer ranks are completely different from the line sort of, you know, hooking and jabbing, fighting bad guys level. But he really treated me like a son, actually, which meant good things like he loved me like a son and bad things like he would absolutely spank me when I needed to be spanked and not obviously physically, but there were times when I would make terrible mistakes and he would be like, listen, dude, if you do that again, you're fired. Don't do that again. And I'm like, yes, sir. Three bags full, you know, and I, I learned so much and we became, uh, we became friends and we're, we're still good friends to this day. Now, I mean, that was 2099, 98, something like that. So, so we've been friends for, for 25 years. Being the late 90s is the peacetime army. When September 11th happened, what what were you doing and how did your life change? Yeah, so when uh, uh, when I changed when I when I came out of the aid job was summer of 2000 and I went directly into going to I went to the Marine Corps Amphibious Warfare School for my captain's course. So I went to AWS summer of 2000 
graduated from AWS in like whatever, May of 2000, and then went straight into cavalry leaders course at Fort Knox. And then from there, I went straight to Ranger School. So I had, I had <laughs> this is a, tr a true and embarrassing story. I'll just go ahead and tell it because it, it's uh, relatable, I think. I was actually, I had a slot to Ranger School as a lieutenant, as a second lieutenant right after airborne school, and I chickened out. Um, I, I just, I didn't feel like I was prepared. I didn't, I, so I, I kind of chickened out and then it just haunted me, man, for like three years. So then when I went back, I just literally started ranger school on September 10th, 01. And the first phase, the first part of ranger school, you do some physical testing, you do swim tests and a PT test and all this stuff. And the second day is really the first real day, you know, and that was September 11th. And so we're, we're, we did, I think that morning we did, did maybe like a buddy run or something like a five mile gear run or some nonsense like that. And then, and then once you pass that, then you're in the school. And so we're getting our gear, we're getting our, our helmets and our body our not our, we didn't have body armor back then, but like our LBEs and all that stuff. And they're on the radios in the shed where they're handing out this gear. There's this, some nonsense story about a terrorist attack and whatever. And we're like, Okay, cool. You know, that that's pretty realistic. Seems everybody seems everybody seems to be taking it pretty seriously, but we thought and I I'm, I'm dead serious here. We thought it was part of the road to war scenario. We thought that okay, so they give us a scenario on the radio and then they're going to say, "Okay, okay, now Rangers, we're all going to go in the woods and kill terrorists," you know? And uh only later that day, at maybe mid-morning, late morning, did we actually get the word that this was real and the Pentagon had been attacked and the World Trade Center's collapsed and all of that stuff. And and then it was real, man. Like we, we really did go to war. You know, um, the, when I was in mountain phase of ranger school is when the rangers jumped into um, Rhino and Operation Rhino, when they jumped in and seized that airfield that, that sort of started the official war on uh, October 17th of 2001. But um, I was at ranger school. So I, and, but I came into this world at peace and I left ranger school in a world at war, but I had orders to Korea. And so my next assignment was by December, I was, uh, I was in the Republic of Korea and I was like, you know, crap, you know, I missed the war. And, and at that time the war was only Afghanistan, but I felt like I'd, I felt like I'd missed the war. When you got to Korea, were you a company commander? Uh, not initially. So, you know, there was a command queue and everything. So I spent a year on uh, staff with 1st Brigade 2ID doing as like an assistant S3 and then as the deputy S3. And then uh, and then I got I took command of a tank company on uh, January 7th, 2003. Uh, I commanded uh, Delta Company 272 Armor, which was then in the Republic of Korea. January of 2003, forces are starting to stage in Kuwait yeah. to get ready to go into Iraq. Did you? Were you on the the list for that, or was your job was guarding the DMZ? Korean forces were very capable. The South Korean forces were very capable, and so the idea was that if the North Koreans hiked the ball and and decided to to go for it, uh, that was going to be the end of their regime. And so ultimately, there was going to be a gigantic counterattack. And the Second Infantry Division was the lead counterattack force for that uh, stuff. So the the South Koreans would blunt the advance, and the Two ID would would lead the charge all the way up north to. Uh, to the end of the regime. So, so that was the mission there. Um, and it was an important mission, but my personal, my like career progression was, was real weird because I'd just taken command of this company in January and, you know, to, to successfully command, you got to command for at least 12 months, more like 18 or 24. And, um, 
And so I, I basically thought I'd missed the war completely. So by summer, by spring of 2004, I'd been in command about 15-ish months. And my boss and his boss came to me in the mess hall. We had heard on CNN, actually, that, uh, that the 2nd Infantry Division had been tasked, basically, to send a brigade to, to Iraq. I was in 1st Brigade, not 2nd Brigade. And so we're like, okay, well, there, there I missed the war again. You know, those guys are going to go. But then my boss and his boss came to me in the mess hall and they said, hey, Dan, we are sending your company to Iraq, but we know you already have orders to go to grad school and then on to West Point as a professor. Do you want to go with your soldiers or do you want to go on to, I was going to go to Syracuse University. And they said, do you want to go to Syracuse or do you want to go on to Iraq with your soldiers? And I literally quoted Isaiah chapter six, verse eight. I said, here, my Lord, send me. And they were like, what does that mean? We don't, we don't even know what that means. So I said, no, no okay, that, that means, uh, of course, I want to go. You know, obviously, as a leader of soldiers, I, I was the most experienced company commander in the, in the battalion, one of the most experienced in the brigade. And so, you know, it would be it would have been unconscionable for me to allow a new company commander to take my soldiers because he would have been learning the ropes. And I already knew the ropes. I knew the guys. I knew the ropes. I knew the equipment. And so I deployed with my soldiers uh, to to Iraq. Uh, we got into Kuwait in August of four and we deployed forward into Iraq in late August, early September of four. Where did you go on that deployment? <laughs> well, I went to this lovely place. They they sent us to the easiest place in Iraq. I kid, I kid. Obviously, they sent us to the worst place in Iraq, which was a place called Ramadi, um, west of Baghdad. So Ramadi at the time, Ramadi was the capital of Al-Anbar province. And Al-Anbar province was the heart of the Sunni part of the insurgency. Of course, there were two halves to the insurgency, the Sunni and the Shia. But the Sunni part of the insurgency was sort of headquartered out of Ramadi. And the other famous part of that of that. Uh, operation or that operational area was the city of Fallujah and uh, Ramadi and Fallujah are sort of uh, two ends to a balloon, right? You squeeze one and the other one gets bigger. And Fallujah had been under quite a bit of squeezing in the spring of 04. There had been a failed, the, the Marines had tried and failed to sort of penetrate and retake Fallujah. And Fallujah was basically turned over to the insurgents full time. And then in November of 04, Operation Phantom Fury took place, which was the, I think, the fiercest urban fighting we've had since uh, probably way in in, 2000, in, uh, in the Vietnam War. But anyway, so, so I was sent to Ramadi, which was an absolute disaster area. Um, when I got to Ramadi, I got to Ramadi like September 1st-ish, let's say. And then I went straight into left seat, right seat ride, you know, with my unit I was replacing. And... We took over our sector on or about 10th of September. And the first casualties my unit took were on the 14th of September. So like four days later, um, one of my lieutenants, uh, whose name is Tyler Brown, was shot and killed by a uh, by a sniper. Um, probably, I don't know if, even know if it was a sniper or like a spray and pray kind of deal. But anyway, he was hit in the upper left leg. And, um, and this, this story will actually become totally critical in a few minutes, but, uh, Tyler was hit in the upper left leg and, um, was bleeding a lot. And the medic, the medic on the scene, it was his first time in contact and it was first time in combat. And he kind of froze and didn't get to Tyler in time to get the bleeding stopped. Uh, it's where it needed to get stopped. And he was, and he was hit th straight through the femoral artery. So he was, he was gushing. I mean, it was a mess. Um, we, 
I, w- I was with him a few minutes before he got shot. And, uh, and then I said, Hey, all right, Tyler, see you later. Or, all right, Brown, see you later, whatever I said. And, and then I got in my Humvee and was going elsewhere. And then he got shot. Um, I was about a kilometer away when he got shot and I got this call on the radio is this panic call from the, not panic, but it was from blue, blue four, the platoon sergeant. He said, Hey, black six, blue four. I said, blue four, black six. Hey, you know, blue one's been shot. We got to do, we're doing medevac, blah, blah, blah. And so, uh, so they transferred, so they, they had Tyler in the back of this Bradley and they, they brought him and, and we switched him over to a Humvee because it was faster. And we got him to the aid station in time, or I should say not in time. I mean, he'd lost a lot of blood. He was pretty gray already, but uh, we got him to the aid station. They, uh, they put him on a medevac helicopter and took him to the surgical station where by the time they got him to the surgical station, he was already in cardiac arrest. Um, and the surgeons who operated on him that night and ended up losing him were the same ones that would operate on me four months later and save me, which is, um, you know, really, uh, this is true that the reason I'm, you know, alive is because of Tyler's sacrifice, because the surgeons learned some stuff in that case that kept me alive four months later. Um, but you know, when you lose a guy like that, he was my roommate in Iraq. He was our, he was a, just an absolutely, I mean, terribly handsome guy, brilliant. He'd been president of his class at Georgia Tech. I mean, he was a, he was an awesome, awesome guy. And when you lose a guy like that, I mean, it shakes the unit to the core, you know, and, and, um, I was with my battalion commander is like 10 o'clock at night. Now, a couple hours later after Tyler got shot and I was with my battalion commander, I was like, sir, you know, he's hit bad. It's not great. You know, he's going to definitely need a bunch of physical rehab and, and stuff, but I think he's going to be okay, whatever. And then the surgeon came in, the battalion surgeon came in and said, Hey guys, you know, we lost him. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, I thought when, if you get a guy to medical professionals, they're going to live. And then, you know, he was, he died and I was, I was so angry and so hurt that I, I mean, I was sobbing, I was sobbing and I, to said to my battalion commander, I'm like, sir, I got to go. I'm out. I'm going to go back to my company. And, and, um, I start to walk out. I mean, tears, you know, coming down my face and the battalion sergeant major who was not well-respected. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know whatever happened to him. I don't, re- I don't have any regard for him overall, but he did something very smart right then. He grabbed me. He goes, sir, where are you going? And I go, I'm going back to my company, Sergeant Major, leave me alone. And he goes, you're not going back to your company right now. I'm like, well, you know, get the F off me. And he goes, sir, you, you, have to, you have to take it down a notch before you go back. And, and that was brilliant advice. Because as a leader, you know, when you lose a soldier, you, what you, what you have to do is you have to dial your emotions way down, like put the squelch all the way up. So your emotions are really flat. And the reason is because your soldiers are going to, whatever you do, your soldiers are going to do more of. And so if you're sobbing and angry, they're going to be more angry, right? But if you're as cool, calm and collective, of course you're hurting and they know you're hurting. But if you keep your wits about you, when everybody else is losing theirs, then you can lead your soldiers. And so that was brilliant advice from him. But, but bottom line was, you know, I had to go back and lead. And so I did. 
I, I kept, I kept fighting. I kept leading. Um, and then we got, uh, we, we had lots of contact at the time. We had small arms and, and, um, RPGs and IEDs and all that stuff constantly. But the next time we took a, a significant casualty was on November 10th, 04, which is the Marine Corps birthday. Happy birthday, Marines, um, Semper Fi, all that stuff. But, um, uh, we were in a firefight on the west side of Ramadi and we'd been in contact all day sort of sporadically and we were in this blocking position. There's a, a more major operation, kind of a clearing operation taking place and we were kind of the blocking force and, and um, we'd, been, we'd been in sporadic firefights all day. But, but that night, my tanks were getting pretty thirsty uh, and so we had to go to where the fuel trucks were and so we we're going to drive across Ramadi, get fuel, come back and then the other half of the tanks were going to go get fuel and come back and we we're going to keep stay out all night. And so I'm leading this patrol across town and uh, we came across this pile of burning tires in the road. And, and uh, you know, whether or not you've seen Black Hawk Down or any other war movie, if you see a pile of burning tires in the road, that's like bad news. <laughs> you know, like don't go, don't go by the burning tires. That's bad. It's always bad place to be, but you know, we're in tanks, so who cares? So we come up to the burning tires and, and off to the left, there's this machine gun fire and, and, you know, some RPGs and some machine gun fire. And we're, we're looking over there with thermal sites. And I said, and it says, I've got this recorded actually, uh, because we had a video camera on the tank, but I said, wow, somebody's in a serious fight over there. And then only, only then did it become obvious to me that we were the ones in the serious fight because the block, the tires had been to block the road, you know, and then there were all these guys off to the left, like spraying our convoy with machine gun fire and RPGs and stuff. And, and it just took, it took 15 seconds for this situation to develop where I understood what was going on. So we're looking over there and, and, uh, it was not our sector. We were out of our sector. We were in a, a Marine battalion sector. So I had to be very careful not to, you know, you can't just kill anybody running around with a gun in a place where they're not your people because I I definitely didn't want to kill any Marines, you know? So, but anyway, we see these guys shooting at us and it became obvious they were insurgents. So so we killed some of them with my tank and then with a coaxial machine gun. And then we were getting ready to move out. We were, and the turret was, the turret was over the left rear, kind of looking back the direction we'd come a little bit. And, and, uh, we were starting to drive and the turret was coming up over the front, you know, to straighten it out as we're driving. And I remember seeing, uh, the RPG coming off the roof of this mosque and, and I saw it, it was frontal to us. And it, cause I saw it, when I saw it, it was like a black circle with sparks all around. And I ducked, I, my, my tank, my hatch was in the open protected position, which meant I had about this much clean air ahead of me. And then the hatch was over my head. There's open hatch, closed hatch, and open protected in a tank. And so I was open protected and I saw the RPG coming and I ducked and I said, and I said over the intercom, I said RPG and I ducked and, and either Private Miller didn't hear or he didn't have time to react or was looking the wrong way or whatever. It didn't, I, I don't know, but it hit my loader in the face. Um, it skipped off the top of the tank. He was up in the hatch. His last words, according to the video recording where I can see him, which means he was getting ready to engage these bad guys with his loaders 240. And, uh, the RPG kind of went, it skipped off the top of the tank in front of him. And, uh, the force of the explosion went through his face, uh, and killed him instantly and, and 
catastrophically. Um, but again, like the other, his name was Dennis Miller. And I, I think it's important to say their names, you know, Dennis Miller from LaSalle, Michigan. And Dennis, uh, so the tank is, I, I caught some shrapnel on my arm and face and I'm bleeding. And, and uh, the tank uh, was full of smoke and dust from the RPG. And then the Halon bottles went off. And so there's the Halon is wafting about in the tank and stuff. And, and so when I looked over, it's dark. I looked over and, and he was sitting on the floor of the tank. And I thought he was just unconscious. I didn't know yet that he was dead. And I, I, um, I reached over and I, I grabbed his head and I shook him. And when I brought my hand back, there were brains on my hand, you know? And so I, I shook the matter off my hand. And I, I said to the crew, I said to the driver and the gunner, I said, guys, he's dead. Let's go. And they're like, sir, sir, you got to treat him. You got to do something. I, I said, and then I said even more calmly, I said, guys, he's dead. Let's go. And again, I think from a leadership perspective, when, when um, in the highest extreme, it's the leader's job to keep everything as cool as possible. So again, I can't panic, even though I've been wounded, even though I know he's dead, I can't panic. I've got to do my job. And so I tried to my best to do my job, which was, Hey, we got to keep fighting. We got to go through this. We got to, we got to get back to the base camp and all that stuff. So we went back to the base camp and, and I remember as we're driving, you know, the inside of the tank has this like, um, like a blue light for reading maps and stuff. It's, but it's like definitely like a blue color or at the time it was, I don't know what it is now, but, um, and I'm looking at my, I'm looking over at him and he's sitting on the floor of the tank and I could see his hands cause his hands were kind of like in his lap and I could see his wedding ring. And I knew then I knew for sure that he was dead, but I knew that his parents didn't know he was dead. His wife, he was married. He was, he was 21. He was married to a 19 year old um, that his wife didn't know he was dead, but I knew he was dead and it was not, not great. It was not easy. So we got back to the base camp and, and uh, I climbed out of the tank as soon as we pulled up to the aid station and walked in under my own power. And, and my soldiers um, took Dennis's body out and put him in a body bag. And, and I didn't back then, I don't know if they did ramp ceremonies, like where they do the whole saluting and cover the flag. And I don't know if they did that back then. I don't know when that occurred that night. I, I wasn't there for it. And I don't know if they even did one. Maybe a helicopter just came and got him. I don't, I don't really know. Um, I regret that. I wish I had, I wish I'd seen him again just to, you know, I don't know. I don't know what that would have done to me, but, uh, the next day we were back at it. You know, we we're my tank was out of, out of the fight for that night because we had to clean it up and we had to some other, two of the other company commanders from the battalion came over with a pressure washer and, and got all the blood and stuff out of the tank for for our crew, which was awfully nice of them to do. Um, because if you think about the trauma of, of doing that for your friend of, of cleaning out your friend's blood and, and other stuff from the tank um, versus having a stranger do it. And in this case, the strangers came and did it out of respect for my crew. And that's a, that's actually kind of a significant lesson, I think too, in, in just love, man, and in just caring for your fellow soldiers enough to do those kinds of things, which are, you know, that's part of combat. You know, you don't ever, I think in training or in, 
military history class or whatever stuff, you don't often think about like, hey, when one of our guys gets killed, now we've got a dead guy, you know? And dead people bleed and dead people have stuff coming out of their bodies. And, and all of that is what happens after a battle. And thinking about that before it happens is really probably kind of important, which is why I'm willing to tell that story. It's a, it's a pretty graphic story, but I think it's important for, for young officers and leaders to, to have the, have some of those thoughts. And so they're not shocked by them. Right. I think a lot of psychological damage occurs in the shock between textbook and reality because in textbooks, Oh yeah, we advanced and two of our soldiers were killed and we killed eight enemy and whatever. In reality, the, in the real world, yeah, that the, that's the paper version, but the real version is now you've got two dead soldiers and eight dead enemy, and you got to put those guys in body bags too if you have if you have the train, you know. And you definitely have to take care of your own guys, and they're going to be it's going to be a mess. And and um, so that's why I'm willing to tell that story for this audience. This concludes the first part of our two-part interview with retired Lieutenant Colonel Dan Gade. The second episode will be available on all of your podcast apps in several weeks. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.